Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. We are going to wrap our pastoral epistles series, and we've really covered a good deal of stuff in 1 Timothy and a little bit in 2 Timothy and a lot in Titus. And I want to give you just my quick summary of what we've been learning over the last eight weeks. Paul, the apostle, is writing these three letters to these two young leaders of young fledgling churches. And one of the very big things he intends to communicate all throughout is that there are people within their church and around their church who claim to be of Christ and yet they're not teaching Jesus faithfully because their hearts and their minds are wrapped up more in politics and in culture than they are in the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And as they do so, it's having an effect on the church. There's dissension and division happening in the church and there are some people who even now are having these false assumptions about their salvation because they've been allowed to listen to these people who are not teaching the gospel faithfully. And again, these people, they claim to know God, they claim to to love Jesus, and yet what they do with their lives and what they say with their lips proves them otherwise. Or in other words, what they're saying and what they're doing shows that they have a lot of mistakes and a lot of errors when it comes to their faith. Now, one of the big emphasis that we've seen Paul give in these letters is for Timothy, for Titus themselves, for the people that they are discipling, for those that they are raising up uh, as leaders in their churches and for every Christian in their church, it is critical, and I'll quote 1 Timothy 4.16, that they watch their life and their faith and their doctrine very closely. He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in these things. And he talks about salvation being deeply tied to having not just beliefs, but lives that are fueled by the gospel. He wants them to ensure that every word, every deed, every action, every position that they take, every reaction that they cast out into the world is first submitted to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which has saved them before it ever comes out in their lives. Let your life flow out of a head and a heart that is fully, fully embracing the gospel in every way, committed to not just believing sound doctrine, but to living sound doctrine in every facet of your life. That's what Paul has been writing about. As I came to the end of the book of Titus, end of this letter, you think about how people end an email, end a letter, how they would end a book, how they would sign off. And I was pretty captivated by the way Paul ended the letter to Titus. He had a line that I didn't expect be kind of the conclusion, the summation of all things. And when I read it, I'm not sure if Paul is now pleading with Titus like, Titus, would you just please get this message across? Or if he's pounding his fist on the table saying, you have got to do this. Or if it's the logical conclusion that is summarizing everything he's been saying all along, it's probably something of all three, but, but he ends the book of Titus essentially saying, and this is my paraphrase, our people must learn to do good and not waste a moment of their lives. And that's the way that he ends this letter to Titus. This is a, a major focus that really has been woven all throughout all three of these books, and we've yet to put like clear spotlight focus on this. 
This idea that we, our people, that Christians must learn to absorb our lives every day with doing good and not wasting one moment of life that God has given us on this earth. And that's what we'll look at and talk about today. So grab your Bible, turn to Titus chapter 3. And we'll come to the end of Titus. Now, Titus 3, we started a couple of weeks ago. I opened Titus 3, and you'll remember I said to you then that one of the the biggest issues, maybe the the biggest challenge to our life as Christians, maybe our, our life as a whole, this is probably true for everyone, is that we have identity issues. We struggle to know who we are, and for Christians, we forget who we are in Christ. And when we do that, there are consequences of that. There is spiritual dissonance, spiritual depression. There is trouble in our life because we don't really remember or maybe we never really understood who we are in Christ. But we're not the only ones who suffer. The world suffers when we don't remember who we are. That's where we'll pick up today and see where this leads. Titus chapter 3, I'll start in verse 4. Paul writes, But when the kindness of God our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, no, but in accordance with His mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. In other words, and I want you to hear this, I want you to memorize this statement. We were saved in order to do good. Can you see this? We say it with me. We were saved in order to do good. I think this is a massive statement that every one of us need to lock into our minds. I want to break it down and make sure you understand why I think it's so important that you know and memorize this statement. First, we. Who's the we that we're talking about here? Us. Who's us? It's a church. It's Christians. Right, because Paul's writing Titus about what Titus should think and believe and do and what Titus should communicate to the church, to everyone who is trusted in Jesus Christ and abides in him for life. The we is every Christian. We, Christians, were saved, it says. How were we saved and, and, and who saved us? Look at the words at verses 4 through 6, what's used. Paul says, when the kindness of God, our Savior, He saved us, right? He saved us not by our deeds, but by the washing and of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He richly poured out on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Who saved us and how were we saved? God saved us. God saved us by His mercy, by the actions of Jesus Christ, and by the Holy Spirit applying that salvation in every facet of our life. You want to remember how you can, you can keep that in mind all the time? Think about it as three A's. God the Father appointed our salvation. Jesus the Son accomplished our salvation. And God the Holy Spirit applies our salvation in every situation that you face. Remember Paul's talked about old men and young men and old women and young women, new believers and seasoned veterans and leaders, people who are slaves and people who are masters. The message is God appointed 
appointed. God the Father appointed that you would be saved. Jesus, who is God, the Son of God, accomplished our salvation on the cross. And God, the Holy Spirit, He takes that salvation and applies it to every facet of every situation you face. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are facing on this day or next week or next year. The Holy Spirit is there to apply your salvation to every moment of your life. Who saved us and how were we saved? God saved us by His mercy, by the actions of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We were saved, look at this, in order. There's a purpose to our salvation and the purpose isn't an end in itself. It's not just so that we could say we're saved people. We weren't saved just to have a new classification. We weren't saved just as eternal fire insurance. We were saved for a great purpose. The purpose is to bring glory to God by living saved, by living salvation, by living for His glory. We do so by doing good, right? There's a misunderstanding or a distortion of this that's been taught throughout all of the, the centuries, throughout all of the ages. And I want to be very clear and make sure that we don't make that mistake this morning. By no means do I mean to say that we are saved by doing good. Remember your, is that participles? Is that what that is? Did I get it right, anybody? My participle, is that, Gene, come on, help me here. Yes, my participle isn't by, we weren't saved by works. He saved us, right? Not on the basis of deeds which we did, but in accordance with His mercy. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved by faith that does work. You follow me? We're saved by a faith that does work. We're saved for a purpose beyond eternal fire insurance. And these letters over and over again make it very clear that purpose is to do good work. That's the job of the church. That's why we are here and not up there right now. The only reason is that we would be here declaring and demonstrating God's goodness turned towards humanity as His grace flows in our life, changes our life, and flows through our life to bring goodness to the hurt and the, the broken situations and people and lives in this world. That's the only reason that we're here and not up there at this point so far. Ephesians 2, 8 declares this, 2, 8, 9, and 10. It says, for by grace, same thing as we just read in Titus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not that of yourselves. No, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. No, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would believe in them. Wait, hang on. So that we would support people who do good works. Wait, hang on. I lost my place. So that we would legislate and debate what is a good work. <laughs> no, no. This says we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would, somebody say it, walk in them. So that we would walk in our salvation, so we would live out our salvation, and it would be seen and expressed and heard as good works. This says the same thing as Titus, as Paul writes to Titus. The basis of our salvation is God's grace. The instrument of salvation is faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross to give us life and life abundant, and the result of salvation is life abundant. We're calling it today good works, the grace of God working in us and then through us. And the reason for this is because when God saved you, understand something, when God saved you, 
He uniquely and divinely united you to Christ. It's a great mystery. He uniquely and divinely united you with Christ. And so the life of Christ, the fullness of his joy, the fullness of his power, his knowledge, his wisdom, his truth begins to be infused with your life. You're no longer just you. You're now Christ living in you. And there is no way to be hit with that kind of force, that kind of power, that kind of love, that kind of joy to be hit with it and not be changed by it. If you're saved, His work in you will flow through you and it will be seen as good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, we are His workmanship. We're His workmanship. The Greek word here is poema. It means something made. I'll say it again. See if you can hear English words derived from this Greek word. Poema. You hear it? Poema. I'm saying what? Poem, the English word poem and poetry is derived from this Greek word. Think of it this way. God has started writing a poem with your life, composing your life into a beautiful song for his pleasure and his glory, right? It's interesting that word is only used one other time in the entire Bible. It's used in Romans 1 when speaking about Genesis 1. Pretty profound because in Romans 1, speaking about Genesis 1, we're talking about a moment where there was nothing, the world was empty, it was void, and out of nothing, God spoke and He spoke all things into existence. And when we find this word used here, what we find is God looked at you, there was no righteousness in you, none. It was void, it was empty, no spiritual life. And God spoke when you trusted in Jesus Christ. He spoke righteousness into your life. He spoke truth and beauty and grace and joy into your life. The same powers that spoke the world into being out of nothing is speaking righteousness and life into your members. And so doing good works, understand this, it's not about you doing something good for God. It's not even about you doing something good for someone else by your piety and with your skills and with your strength. No, it's about inviting Jesus to reign in every facet of your life. That there's no part of your life, no moment of your day where Jesus doesn't reign as king, where he is not alive in you and through you. It's about inviting the Holy Spirit to shine light on and to empower you in moments that you would see and react and respond and do in ways that you never would without him. It's about you fully yielding, completely yielding to Jesus Christ in every way, letting him bring his good, his glory, his joy, his kindness, his mercy into you that you would absorb it and move it through you into the dark and broken places of this world that he would reign in your life and through your life. In other words, being a Christian isn't the resolve to live better. I think a lot of us grew up thinking that, right? I'm a Christian now, that means I need to do these things differently and clean up my act. It's not about you having the resolve to live better and be better and to do better. No, it is about you living resurrection life. It's about being resurrected to life in Christ. It's about Him living in you and through you and bringing His good into the brokenness of the world, shining His light into the dark corners of your life the dark corners of the place in which you live. That 
is what we're talking about when we talk about good works. Now come back to Titus 3, 4 through 8. What this is said is you were saved in order to do good, right? Say it with me. You were saved in order to do good. One more time because we're memorizing today. Ready? You were saved in order to do good. When do we do good? When should we do good? Well, I'll tell you my answer. My answer is every moment that you're awake. Probably the moments when you're asleep too because who knows what God may do. I mean, he could do anything, right? So we say, God... Would you reign in me every moment of my life? Because I so desire to experience your joy and your peace. And I don't want one second apart from the life that you have given. Would you reign in me at all times? Verse 14, our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful so they won't waste their lives so we won't waste one moment of life that God has given us on one hand this is very basic stuff right like we nod our heads we go of course I mean our youngest children down the hall if they're not eating paste right now they're not eating paste right now because our kids workers I should not have said that our kids workers would not let them eat paste no one worry They're watching very carefully. But even those who are tempted to, they don't know much yet. They haven't learned a lot about themselves or about the world or about the Lord yet. But but a lot of them, our youngest ones could even say, well, I know this. I know that God loves me and I'm supposed to love other people or be kind or do good. They can get that. We get that. So on one hand, it's this very, very basic stuff. But on the other hand, we are so distracted to the grace of God in our life and through our life, that this is, while it's easy to believe, it's very, very hard to live according to this, isn't it? We're incredibly distracted to the grace of God. And they were too. Paul's aware of this. This is why he lands here after all of the implications and the applications and the instructions given to these leaders and to this, these churches in Crete and Ephesus. After all of, of this, Paul lands with Titus we got to do good because he knows that there are distractions and he talks about those distractions here in Crete. The church had to recognize the distractions for what they were and deal with them before it led them astray and they had unfruitful lives and they wasted their existence in Crete. So what were the distractions? I'll tell you this, Paul outlines two distractions here and I believe then and now these are the two great distractions to the church. Two distractions, most often what distracts us from the grace of God Foolish controversies and factious people. That's what Paul says. And he says that it is devastating to the church. He describes these people in chapter 1. If you want to flip back to chapter 1, verse 10, Paul talks about foolish controversies and factious people and how it affects the church. He says, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And he's talking about a group known as, or we know as, the Judaizers. And the Judaizers were doing a couple of things, really. One thing they would do is they would add to the gospel. They would say, you know, there is Jesus Christ and you should believe and trust in him. But there are also some religious things that you must do in order to be fully saved. It's Jesus plus fill in the blank equals acceptance before God. It's one thing they would do. Another thing Judaizers would do is they would take issues that were non-essential issues and they would raise them to essential status. 
You follow me? They would take secondary or tertiary issues and say that these are critical to, to salvation. And as they did this, they were consumed with theological and sociological debates. They created compelling arguments that competed with and sometimes uh, uh, superimposed themselves over real truth. They allowed culturally driven ideas, not biblically driven ideas, not gospel driven ideas, not Jesus driven ideas, but cultural driven ideas to overwhelm and take the place of, of sound doctrine. And they did so, and as they did so, they considered themselves spiritually superior to anyone who might disagree with them. And it had a devastating effect in the church. This isn't just a philosophical divergence in Crete. It's not just contrasting speculation that is of no consequence. Verse 11 says, those people must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. And we don't know if these are like nuclear families or church families, little bodies spread throughout Crete, bodies of Christ spread throughout Crete, but they're being turned over. Their faith is being undermined because of these people who are allowing cultural ideas to carry the same weight or more weight than sound doctrine. It's giving some people false assurances of faith. It's causing other people to believe the wrong things. It's causing fighting to take place. It's undermining their testimony. It's undermining their focus. And it is undermining their ability and their desire to do good works in their community. Now that's familiar, isn't it? It's a little too familiar for us. We know, we know something of the pain of factious people and foolish controversies in our country, right? Yeah. We've watched, we've, we have watched and we have seen and we've experienced, we've, maybe we've dipped our toe in it ourselves, being swept up into everything but the gospel and doing it in Jesus' name. And it's been devastating to our testimony. It's undermined so many people's faith it's distracted us from the grace of God at work in us and through us. It has taken our eye off of our calling. Article came out a couple of weeks ago and several of you sent it to me. I love the article. I thought it really cut to the heart of the, the great distraction to the grace of God experienced by churches in America today. And it reflects so many of the things that, that we have talked about together over the last couple of years when we studied Colossians we did the, the series on, on the Tale of Three Kings, the low-key series, the uh, Escaping the Entanglement series. We talked about it in 1 John. We're talking about it in this series. We've been talking about this. The main idea of the article was this. The aggressive, disruptive, and unforgiving mindset that characterizes so much of our politics has found a home in many American churches. No wonder there's disorder and chaos and distrust and confusion. The angry politics of the world have made their home with Christians' hearts. Thinking about how did we get here, one person they interviewed in the article said, it's, it's because culture catechizes. I think that's a really great way to say it. Do you, do you follow what it means? Culture catechizes. Catechesis is the process of instruction or, or the process of, of preparing people's beliefs and practices in their life. In other words, it's how we come to believe what we believe about God and about life, about what's right, about, about what's wrong, and about how those things direct or inform our decisions and our actions. And this guy says, yeah, well, culture catechizes. His point is that culture has become the dominant voice for so many people's lives when it comes to forming or shaping 
shaping what they really believe about God, about themselves, and about the world. And he went on to say this, people come to believe what they are most thoroughly and intensively catechized to believe, and that catechesis comes not from the churches, the Bible, the Word of God, the people of God. No, it comes from the media they consume, or rather, he rephrases, that catechesis comes now not from the churches, but from the media that consumes them. And the result of that is that many people are much more committed to their politics and to culture than they are than to what the Bible actually has to say about God and about us and about life and the opportunity in front of us. So what we have, what we're dealing with, not in all cases, but in many cases, is, is party politics and, and identity issues and cultural anxieties and anti-intellectualism and ethnic nationalism and resentments and grievances and all kinds of trouble wearing the Halloween costume of a Christian. I know I'm a week late on that, but, but it's as if all of the trouble of this world said, it's time to find a costume. I'm going to dress up as a Christian, and we all know it's just a facade. We're seeing it now with lips and with lives. We're going on the inside. That's not what is driving you. It's not what's driving this person. And in some cases, it's not what's driving these, these churches. It's dressed up as a Christian. And you and I know this. We know that we are prone to do it too. And we do it unconsciously sometimes, don't we? We don't realize that's what we're doing. It happens, what, like to us? That doesn't make it any less devastating as it happens. And so... I'm not sure that I need to ask the question, but I'll ask the question. I think I know the answer. The question is, are you concerned about it? Are you at all concerned about what you're seeing unfold in our day? We should be. We should be deeply concerned. Not, not concerned in a way that leaves us paralyzed, but in a way that leads us. We should be concerned in a way that leads us to honest self-reflection. We should be way, way concerned in a manner that leads us to humility. We should be concerned in a way that leads us to action. Paul is very straightforward, very blunt about how to deal with foolish controversies and factious people. He's as blunt and straightforward as he's been throughout these letters. Look at verse 9. The first thing he says is we must avoid foolish controversies. Verse 9 says, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law for they are unprofitable and they are worthless. Now the word here, avoid, actually means, well, it means avoid. <laughs> it does. And here we're not talking about avoiding people, here we're talking about avoiding the controversies that might come and distract us from who we are and what we're here to do on this earth. We're refusing to allow foolish controversies to consume or to take control over our minds and our hearts. We're, we're refusing to let debates and sidebars and raise non-essentials to essential status to have those things be the driving forces and all-consuming ideas that, that lead our lives in what we say and what we think about and what we pray about and what we do about. Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, don't let your life and don't let your church get drawn in 
to the whirlwind that distracts us from who we are in Christ and what He has left us here to do because nothing good can come from it. If you go back to verse 8, it's interesting. The declaration of the gospel we read a moment ago, the declaration of the gospel and how it's come to us and how it changes us and what it creates in us, it says this, these things are good and profitable. And when it comes to foolish controversies and debates and religious and political conversations, sinking down into the debate and, and stirring up division, he says it's unworthless. It's unprofitable and it is worthless, sorry. You can see the contrast. In one case, when it comes to the simple, clear picture of the grace and kindness and mercy of God coming to transform a person, to give them life that the Holy Spirit would move in a person's life, it is good and profitable. profitable. But if it's anything that's leading to division and debate and to losing your focus on what you're here for, it's unprofitable and it's worthless. Now listen. My friend Anne-Marie taught our staff this week, sometimes, like in the movie Inside Out, there are different parts of us warring inside of us. One part of us agrees quickly with that and goes, well, yeah, of course, we should stay focused. We should be right on the main thing and not get distracted by all of these other conversations. But there's another part of us that really struggles with the command here to avoid foolish controversies, to not think about it, get involved in it, and, and get, you know, drawn into it, because we know that there are some things worth debating. There, there are some things that, that we need to be involved in. The problem is, it's a really tough time understanding when are those times. When do I get involved and when do I not? How, how tightly do I hold on to this idea and, and when do I, I loosen my grip? What's difficult is finding what hills that we should die on. And that's a plug for a book I want to show you real quickly. And I'll make this very quickly. This is one of the more powerful books I've read recently, and I would recommend it to every one of you. The book is called Finding the Right Hills to Die On by Gavin Ortland. Uh, I think this is an incredibly important book for Christians to read in 2021. That's, that's as far as the plug goes. But I want you to take note of it. The difficulty for us is knowing what hills to die on and knowing when to hold it and when to fold it as one guy sang. I don't listen to country music, but I just, I just did right there. <laughs> Paul here, listen, understand, he's not saying that we can't have thoughts or we should not have thoughts or opinions or weighted opinions on anything other than the gospel. He's not saying that, but he's talking about priorities is what he's talking about. Paul's talking about having theological and ministry priorities in our lives, and his words demand that we examine and consider whether controversy and argument, whether uh, politics or positions in pop culture or secondary or tertiary issues have become primary concerns in our hearts and in our minds, and if they do, Paul's saying, well, then we need a radical renovation of the priorities in our lives. Understand the things that threaten to divide us, the answer to that is not to eradicate all of our differences. No, it's to view all of our differences in the light of the gospel. The solution to all of the things that threaten to divide us is to view our differences in light of Jesus. Think about your life for a moment. Close your eyes, would you just go with me on this? Close your eyes for a second. It'll be easier to focus. I wonder what things we've allowed to creep in, to twist up our minds and our hearts. 
I wonder what things have been given too much credence and control in what we say and what we do and how we think and what we post. I wonder what things we've allowed to divide and to damage relationships in our lives. We're all tempted by different things. I wonder if you can identify some of those things very quickly in your life. You can open your eyes. John Perkins, the pastor and and civil rights leader, wrote in his book, Dream With Me. He wrote this. I know most Americans today do not worship Baal. But when I look at the church in America, I fear that we have our own Baals that demand our worship. I see so many people bowing down before prosperity theology and the idea that God just wants to make us wealthy and happy. I see people entrapped by the isms, racism, sexism, ageism, classism, and so many others that divide our church, choosing first, it's about priorities, choosing first to obey and revere these divisive systems rather than the God who has called us to be reconciled to one another and to be one in Christ Jesus. How do we avoid foolish controversies, church? First thing we do is we recognize them for what they are. We have to, we have to t- take account what is essential, what is critical to salvation, to knowing who I am in Christ, what is critical to our identity as a church and what we're here to do in this world, what is critical missionally to the work God has given us to do until the day Jesus returns for us and consummates the beauty and perfection that's been intended all along for humanity where Jesus reigns as King of kings and wipes away every tear, every trouble, every sickness, every important for us to recognize what those things are, to call them out for what they are and to refuse to allow them to be a distraction to the grace of God at work in our life and through our life. Don't allow there to be any distraction in your heart, church. Anything that would steal joy and life and power, uh, the, the joy and life and power of Jesus working in you and through you to bring about good and to glorify God in all of your days. It's the first thing that Paul says. The second thing, I'll make this one quick. He says, we have to reject factious people. Look at verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and a second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. In verse 9, it's about avoiding controversies ruling my heart. In verse 10 and 11, here it's about don't let people who love controversy have a, a place and a voice to distract and to lead the church astray. The first warning to us from Paul was don't let your heart be consumed. Now it's don't let people who love controversy carry you aside and cause distraction and division because the result is, and we saw this in chapter one, they will bring others down that dark hole with them. They will draw others into distraction and division. They will create factions in the church and nobody will enjoy the grace of God at work in them and through them. It will turn people away from their faith. But notice Paul says, give them warnings, right? There's two warnings there, a first warning and a second warning. And this reflects the idea of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 on church discipline. 
exactly what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. And, and I want you to remember that church discipline has always been, is always about restoration and unity. It's not about shame. It's not about punishment. It's not about guilt. It's not about isolating people. It's about inviting people back into abundant life wherever sin or brokenness or confusion or distraction has led them aside from that. It's about restoration and about unity. And Paul says, give them warnings because God forbid we who should love that person and we who should love this church and we who should love the community around us would do nothing about a brother or sister we see who've come to love division and love controversy and love leading people astray. God forbid that we would do nothing and say nothing. So warn them, say, I see what's happening. I do, I want to call you in love up to the gospel and the standard of the gospel in your life. I want you to see truth and love and light and grace. But if they hear your warning and they double down on their controversy, don't keep arguing with them. And some of you need to hear that because some of you have a year-long or a decade-long fight going on with someone in your life. Maybe you've been doing it online over the last two years and it's on Facebook and there's 197 comments on a post. I have no words. Stop it. Make it end. Some of you are texting a person on and on late into the night and telling them how they're wrong and they're coming back how you're wrong and you're wrong, no, you're wrong. And this isn't a healthy, life-giving conversation that's leading to greater edification of the two of you and greater glorification of Christ. No, it's just an ugly fight. And what I'm telling you is you need to stop it. You need to turn around and you need to walk away. Paul uses the word reject. You need to reject them in grace. And you go, Kevin, well, how is that loving? Paul, how is that loving to reject a person? I think I'm going to speak for Paul here. I don't think I'm too far out of line. You be very careful when you're speaking for people who wrote the Bible. Like, that, that's an unhealthy thing to do in general. Based on what he's been writing, I think Paul might look at you and say, what is the calling of the gospel on your life? Is it to argue and debate every detractor into submission? Is the gospel's call on your life to dominate and domineer every sidebar and every non-essential issue to death until you have won? No, I think Paul has said very clearly, the gospel's call on your life is this. You were saved in order to do good. Don't get distracted by dissension and controversy and factious people and forget who you are in Christ and what he has saved you to do. So it's not about I'm not being loving to this person. It's about saying I can no longer fight with you as you have said I will not come to reason. I will not come to grace. I will not come to love. God bless you. I have to go and do good works now. Paul says, our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. The needs are pressing. If we're distracted, we won't be there to meet them. And what does that mean? It means we'll have unfruitful lives. Don't get distracted. That's the heart of the end of the letter to Titus. Stay focused and don't get distracted. God is calling us in his word to have open eyes to the real and pressing needs in this world and to go at them and meet them in Christ's love, by Christ's power, for Christ's glory and for the good of others. 
You remember the movie, The Shawshank Redemption? Yeah. Top 10 for anyone? And a couple, yeah. Wow, I heard some yeses. Good for you. My estimation of your, your uh, movie watching just went way up. I love it. So Andy Dufresne is falsely accused and, uh, and imprisoned for murder. Tim Robbins plays Andy Dufresne. He meets in prison Morgan Freeman's character, Red, and they become friends, building trust, building a relationship over the years, learning a lot about each other, about the prison system, and about life together. And probably the most famous quote from the scene is from Andy speaking to Red. Red says that again later, but Andy says it to Red. They're sitting in the prison, leaning against one of the prison walls, and Andy says, Red, it's a simple choice, really. You know the line. You want to say it with me? Let's say it together. Ready? Get busy living or get busy dying. I think that sounds a lot like Paul here at the end of Titus. Either get busy spending your life living abundantly, doing good by the power of Jesus for the glory of Jesus and for the good of those who are hurting and broken in this world, or get busy fighting the wrong fights of politics and religion. Titus, churches in Crete, legacy church. Message is get busy living or get busy dying. And I call you and, and me together to stay focused, to avoid distractions, and to live for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, um, we come needing to confess our dependence upon you for every breath. Maybe it's only when we really acknowledge how alone and empty and powerless and unwise we are without you that we can begin to find true humility. And only when we find true humility may we begin to walk the path of Christ. Jesus, we need you. We need you to even know, for us to even know how badly we need you. We need your help for that. We need you for salvation. We need you for life. We need you for grace. We need you for truth. You embodied the solution to every need of our life. And may those here who are Christians this morning, Holy Spirit, would you remind them of who they are because of Jesus, that they no longer live, but Christ lives in them, that they are sons and daughters of the living God and co-heirs with their elder brother, Jesus. And Holy Spirit, would you apply that salvation to their words and to their decisions and to their reactions to the way they come together and the way they go apart this day. And Holy Spirit, would you help them to apply the gospel to every moment? Not so that they could check a box or be simply approved, but so that they could experience abundant life. And that your grace they would learn to grow and appreciate and enjoy your grace so that your grace 
would not just work in them, but would work through them and the dark corners of, of their world, the dark corners of their office, the dark corners of their classroom, the dark corners of their neighborhood would see light. Lord, would you work through us? Help us, Holy Spirit, to not be distracted. And the world has given us so many distractions and we're watching our brothers and sisters be turned aside, their faith be undermined by these who are empty talkers and deceivers. So Lord, help us to avoid those foolish controversies and to reject those who would seek to divide, who love to divide. May we cling to Christ and enjoy, enjoy delight and the life he died to give us. In Jesus' name, amen.